And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. Look, if you're in the tech space and you build software, you've ever built software, or you're even familiar with software, you may have heard the term DevOps. What does that actually mean? Does anybody actually know? Some people might and some people might not, but this is a very important part of modern technology companies. We're going to talk all about that today. I've got an amazing guest with an amazing history. Before I give you an introduction to her, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Wix. Yes, our friends over at Wix know a thing or two about turning the scrappy startup team into a global organization that serves millions of people. And they want to share what they've learned with Startup Hustle, startup hustle listeners in their new micro podcast series called Ready for Takeoff by Wix. When you tune in for the Ready for Takeoff by Wix podcast, you get to hear from Wix founders and company leaders. They share super short lessons to help you build better programs and teams faster. Hey, and that's the topic I can get behind. So subscribe and follow Ready for Takeoff by Wix. There's a link for link in the show notes, people. If you haven't figured that out, there's this thing called the notes down at the bottom. And you'll also find information and links with today's guests. And with me today, I've got Erica Brescia, and she is a managing director at Red Point Ventures as a venture capital firm in the Valley, SF people, San Francisco, California. Uh, That is one of the many, many amazing things that Erica has done. I'm going to let her tell you more about it. So I guess I should say, Erica, welcome to Startup Hustle. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Look forward to chatting about all things software development and DevOps. And trying to figure out if anyone knows the real, <laughs> the real definition of DevOps, but I don't even want to go there yet. I'd like to hear a little bit more about your backstory first. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I'm a managing director at Redpoint. That means I invest in uh technology startups. I'm actually fairly new to the venture world. I joined Redpoint in January after over 15 years as a founder and operator. Most recently, I was the chief operating officer of GitHub. Hopefully all folks are familiar with uh, GitHub, but it's really what we think of as the home of all developers and where most of the world's software development happens today. And prior to that, I spent 15 years as a founder of a company. Uh, Last company was called Bitnami. I like to say it was DevOps before DevOps was a thing. And then prior to that, a company called uh, Bitrock. And both were really in the software packaging and deployment space, trying to make it easier for people to uh, consume software and open source in particular. Yeah, I think with with that and DevOps, and you talk about working as a team, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar or or kind of new to this space, if you were building software 15 years ago and you were doing it on a team, it wouldn't be a stretch to learn that you had been overwritten by someone else uploading code to a server and making changes. And, you know, 15 years ago, and I think that's probably an appropriate time frame for like, when, when when, when did GitHub come out? 
just or like some of the other stuff. Yeah, it's, 2008. It's about 15 years ago, right? 2008 was when GitHub was founded. I was so founded, close. So. Wow. Yeah, you were. Yeah, yeah. I know. It, it shows you how really old, old I am. It's, <laughs> I, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I just had a birthday. I just turned 47 and I'm 47 years experienced. After 45, it's not years old. I'm 47 <laughs> years experienced. Um, but but uh, the struggle was real. And I remember going through this with the very first software thing I tried to build and we would overwrite each other or like, I don't know, it was just a mess. And so the world of DevOps was kind of born. Now, here we are 15 years later, and it's really complex. There's a zillion different products. You have GitHub, Kubernetes, Docker. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So I think let's start with the good old internet definition of DevOps, and maybe we can see if we agree or not. So according to the internet, that's where I'm citing this. This is how scientific we are here on Startup Hustle. DevOps is the combination of cultural philosophies, practices, and tools that increases an organization's ability to deliver applications and service at a high velocity. What does that mean? It makes it easy for you to share the work that you've done, not be the bull in the china shop, and, you know, really kind of improve products at a faster sp space. And some people actually refer to this as like CICD and some other things too. So, yeah, I mean, but, but uh, are we far off on that definition or how would you define it? Oh my God. I mean, it's because a really that didn't mean a whole lot to me. <laughs> it's a, like, it's I feel like my clunky. definition of like, it helps you not overwrite, helps you <laughs> not destroy what someone else did is a better version. Yeah. I mean, I think the key word to me is velocity. Like when I think of DevOps, there are, there are two things, like two attributes. I think velocity and automation are the two yeah. things that really come to mind. <clears throat> and underpinning that is the cultural change that it takes. And if you think about it, and this is one, sometimes I wish podcasts were on video because I like to talk with my hands, but you know, it's really you like- You can make that happen if you want. We are actually <laughs> recording the video. We can publish it if you want people. To, she is waving her hands. I, I can I attest am. I, I'm, yeah. I'm very hand, hand wavy. Yeah. That's what they say about VCs, right? <laughs> um, no, but I think it really is about going from like way back in the day, if you go back 15 years, people were doing like water file waterfall style development processes, right? Where it just took forever to ship a new piece of software or ship a new release. Yeah, and DevOps is all about like how how many like tight circles can you have? How often can you deploy code? How quickly can you iterate and improve your product? And what do you need to change about the way that you work to enable that, right? Like that's how I think about DevOps is like, how can we automate all of the things that um, slow developers down and are not fun and are not making the best use of developers' talents, right? Like, how do we eliminate manual work? How do we bring in a lot of automated testing um, with the right, like, um, kind of collaboration interface? You talked about working as a team. I think that's an important part. And then take that software from it being written to it being deployed into production which doesn't fit as neatly on a little card as that definition that you well, read, I think, I think but I, found I think a it's more one. practical. I, th I think oh. I found a better one. So, and this is actually from Red Hat and thanks Red Hat because you have been a sponsor of Startup Hustles. So uh, I appreciate that. Uh, DevOps is all about the unification and automation of processes and DevOps engineers are instrumental in combining code, application maintenance and application management. I like that definition a lot more. Yeah, it's definitely better. Yeah. It's definitely better.
I yeah. still don't so, love it. Although I do now, love Red Hat. <laughs> but one of the things that I think when it comes to DevOps, it's important to remember is, as here we are all these years later in the lifetime cycle of software being developed, and it's, it's so layered. And there's, you know, software now compared to 20 years ago, there's so much code, there's so many different things. And, and I think that the Amazon effect of the instant gratification that people want also probably had something to do with the push for like the growth of the DevOps industry because people want to fix now. And as a founder, if anything was ever broken, didn't you want it fixed quickly? <laughs> of or course. maybe not yeah. broken at all? Yeah. yeah. I mean, expectations, consumer expectations in general have just changed across the board. I think one of the interesting things about kind of cloud and how software has evolved is obviously like much more of the world is powered by software than ever before. And that trend will continue. And um, as people have built more applications and brought more services online, and we see more like SaaS services and things like that, like the way that we need to build and deploy and manage software has changed, right? And if you if you really zoom out, you, you used to install software on like a physical server on-premise, right? And then you would deploy a virtual machine. VMware made it easy to like build a VM and then you could run multiple VMs on one machine. And then you have cloud, which gave you those VMs kind of that you didn't have to manage any physical hardware to support. And then you had um, like the dockerization of the world and then Kubernetes to manage all of your containers, right? And with Kubernetes and containers, that really forced you to automate more than ever before. Like you literally cannot manually maintain microservices in a Kubernetes environment, right? There's just too many pieces. You could never hire the people power to support that. And so I think like these new architectures have really forced the adoption of DevOps, you know, and in some places better than others, but like you just don't really have a choice but to start automating your software, like testing, deployment, management, because there, there's just no other option. And I think that's kind of like what's forced a lot of the cultural change and how we think about the role of a software developer and, you know, a DevOps engineer, as you mentioned before the podcast, like this kind of new role that means a lot of different things to a lot of people that's become necessary just to keep uh, the kind of the, the pipelines that you have for your software uh, functional. So let, let's, let's go back in time to Bitnami. And, you know, you mentioned like that felt as, you know, at maybe at this point, a grandmother or grandfather of DevOps industry. In the very infancy of what is now a very big deal, like a very big industry, like DevOps is, is a, a specific type of developer, deployer, all of it. It's a very important part of stuff. But what was the original, like, what was the like OG problem that you had to solve at Bitnami to even get it started? And and what what attracted you to wanting to create that solution? Yeah, so Bitnami was really driven by the growth in open source software. So if you go back, <clears throat> this goes all the way back to 2005, actually, there was this first wave of commercial open source companies that were being created. And there were companies that a lot of people listening might not have even heard of before. Um, but there was MySQL, hopefully some folks know about that. But, you know, there was also like Xenos and SugarCRM and Jaspersoft and Groundwork and all these companies that were getting built. Pentaho was another one. 
and they were building business applications and open source. Um, but the people that they were selling to didn't really know how to get the application set up because it had all these different dependencies, right? So I'll, I'll take Sugar CRM, which was a, a, a customer relationship management application. It was built on what, what was called the LAMP stack, right? Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP. And if you were a business buyer and you wanted to try Sugar CRM, you couldn't actually get it installed because you had to install a full like web server and everything to run it. And so the opportunity that we saw was to take an open source piece of software and all of its dependencies and package it in a way that made it very easy for people who were not systems administrators to get it deployed and running. So that was kind of the genesis. And what we saw was that we could increase distribution tremendously because we made it easier for people to get this uh, software up and running. And we also really cut down sometimes by 70% or more the installation related support requests that these companies would get. And so we started there. And then, you know, I talked about this like on-prem VM, cloud containers, Kubernetes, um, when the cloud started, like Amazon started to grow, we started building AMIs for Amazon that were like these kind of pre-baked images where all of the different pieces in them um, had been tested and known to work together. Because this was another problem in the early days of open source in particular, before we got good at packaging all this stuff, you call it dependency hell, right? Like you try to spin up one thing, but you'd have the wrong version of some library in Linux or the wrong you know, version of Apache or whatever, some configuration issue and you couldn't get it to work and it could take you weeks just to get something installed. So, you know, we would kind of like do all the integration testing and configuration and then just hand you something where you could go click, 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 boom. You know, it goes to that instant gratification that that you were talking about. And then, you know, as Bitnami and cloud and containers evolved, we built like an automated system that would track every upstream open source project that a piece of software would depend on and download any new releases and run a bunch of integration tests and then publish new images. So the benefit you got from Bitnami was whenever you took a Bitnami image, you would know it was up to date and everything would work out of the box. <clears throat> um, so that, that's how Bitnami came about. What you're talking about on the most basic kind of uh, blue collar level, I often refer to as framing and plumbing. And, you know, if you want to talk about building a house and this is the, this is the not exciting part of building a home. It's you not know, there's sexy like, at there's, all. <laughs> yeah. Forever too. And the, the thing is, is without good structural elements, it's a mess. But the reason I bring it up is because a lot of times when we get, you know, uh, earlier stage clients at, at full scale. And you go to, if you want to learn more about what I do, go to fullscale.io. We help you build software teams. But, um, you know, I, I tell a lot, I advise, uh, we, you and I admitted that at our core, we are non-technical founders, although yep. very capable yep. of talking about very <laughs> technical stuff. But if you haven't experienced that, you can get, you get like weeks, a month or more into this like framing and plumbing side of things and it really can be frustrating and in some cases you know lead to those that don't have experience being like are we even doing this right am i making any progress it's i mean it's a frustrating process and and then back to like you mentioned the expertise so when you're taught when 
when Eric is talking about quote images, these aren't JPEGs. <laughs> yeah. Images of a server. And, and so, so much of that is if you think about what's going on inside of an Amazon web server or something, or any kind of programming framework or any, even something that's something like WordPress, all of these updates come out and they're patches, improvements and changes. And most people don't know how to deploy them. And, and that, and the problem is, is these become vulnerabilities, weak spots and often broken stuff later. So, you know, I, I think that that's a, you know, that was a, and I, that was a little newer of an explanation to me and it made a lot more sense. So if you, so if you don't have someone to take care of that stuff for you or to set it up for you, you need to either go find that person, you're hoping they do it well and who's going to maintain it. So thus the need for the automation. And I mean, if that, if you really want to spend time updating patches and <laughs> little things, but that's, is that, is that really kind of the core genesis of like giving developers their time back to actually develop? Exactly. I mean, the, the COO in me is all about efficiency, right? I just, one of my biggest pet peeves is wasted time on anything. And you just, yeah. it doesn't add value to do this. Like the work needs to be done, but you don't need every human like to duplicate this process in all these companies when it's a common issue, right? And again, on the collaboration front, um, one thing that's really key is that your developers have standardized development environments. So when they're writing code and then you take it from their development environment to maybe somebody else is working on it to staging to production, like you need to have the same setup or else stuff starts breaking. And then again, you lose all this time going to fix things, which is not actually delivering the core value. It's not writing the software. Like that's, what developers want to be doing, not like debugging some random configuration issue because of an inconsistency across different platforms. So, um, and this you know, it's complicated. I might just, you know, go, I might go back to manual labor or something. <laughs> oh, wait, that's still manual labor to go in and fix all this stuff. And you mentioned the COO and you, and I want to talk about that, but I want to remind everyone that our friends over at Wix, yes, the website and business building platform, know a thing or two about turning a scrappy startup team into a global organization serving millions. And they want to share what they've learned with you in a new micro podcast series called Ready for Takeoff by Wix, where the company's founders and leaders share super short lessons. Hey, Wix, that is not easy to say. Share super short lessons. But you should go listen to it. It's designed to help you build better products and teams faster. So subscribe and follow the Ready for Takeoff by Wix podcast right now on Apple, Spotify, everywhere you find podcasts. There's a link in the show notes. And also there is a link in the show notes to Redpoint Ventures. And we'll talk about that later. But uh, you mentioned a COO. So you were the COO at GitHub. Now, that's a big deal. Uh, it, it is. And GitHub was acquired by Microsoft for $7.5 billion, and roughly. Is that sound about Correct. right? Yes. So GitHub was, is, and I asked before, and, and maybe my lack of experience or ignorance or not knowing, I asked before we recorded, I was like, is, was GitHub the original DevOps? I think for a lot of people, it might have been the first introduction to some of this, you know, in, in that regard. But for me, GitHub was just in layman's terms. It was like, hey, we need to use this so we don't overwrite people. And I was like, dude, can we sign up now? 
because I was experiencing a lot of the frustrations, but I, you know, for a lot of developers, this is nuts. So I've had 2,500 people apply for developer jobs in the last three months. You would be surprised how many of them have no idea how to use Git. These are people with like 10 years of experience. And at this point we're like, where have you been? Were you in hibernation or whatever? But, you know, as far, were were you, when it comes to GitHub, like obviously, you know, a C-suite role there, but that grew pretty quickly. What was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, I think GitHub is a remarkable kind of cultural as well as technology phenomenon. And, you know, the company was founded by some brilliant folks long before I got there. Um, but, you know, to your first point about was it like the the start of DevOps, I think in a way, I think, you know, what GitHub really did was make software development more collaborative. And you mentioned not overwriting people's stuff, and that's an important part of it. But it was also like, <clears throat> how do you enable a team to build software more effectively together, right? That's all about what GitHub is about. And then, or that's how it started. And then it, it really became like, how do we build the home for all software developers? How do we build a place where you can go not only to write your own code, but to discover other projects, to get involved in other projects, to share the work that you're doing with others, to get feedback, right? And um, that's really like a a core underpinning of how software is developed today and how the open source world works. And, you know, um, for those of you who aren't deep in open source, you know, it powers virtually every aspect of our daily lives, whether you know it or not, from your phones, to your cars, to your pacemakers, to uh, the planes that we fly in, like, you name it, um, over 90% of uh, software written today ends up having some aspects of open source uh, involved in it. And so, you know, GitHub has really become kind of the the home for that. Um, and you mentioned, you know, the growth. So I joined shortly following the Microsoft acquisition uh, that closed in 2018. I joined in 2019. And really, um, GitHub at the time, trying to remember, we had tens of thousands of developers on the platform. We had over 70,000, uh, 70 million. I said thousands. Jeez, I need more coffee. <laughs> tens of millions of developers on the platform. We had over 70 million uh, when I left. So, you know, most of the world's developers have a GitHub account and are, are building software there. And I think, you know, GitHub has gone from like code hosting and collaboration to offering a lot of other very cool things from code spaces, which lets you spin up a dev environment instantly in the cloud uh, to Copilot, which is like an automated pair programmer. And I think that's a really interesting topic for us to cover is like how to how will AI and machine learning like kind of usher in the next generation of software development is it's an area I'm super passionate about as as an investor. Um, but, you know, GitHub, um, another, I guess, core to um, DevOps uh, product that GitHub introduces called Actions, which is basically lets you build uh, CICD pipelines that are super powerful. And that was wildly successful and just like basically took over all of GitHub. Like most projects on GitHub are using actions now, which is pretty cool. Um, so it was, it was a really, really neat company to be a part of that I think, um, serves a really important function for the world's developers, um, and in bringing new developers throughout the world into open source and, and into the global, uh, 
uh, software development community, which I think is really exciting, especially when you look at places like Africa and Latin America and Asia, where you have like these countries that are just getting more connectivity, the internet that are full of unbelievably talented people that now because of open source, because of GitHub, like can kind of become a part of that world and create new financial opportunities uh, for themselves that they would have never had before. Yeah. And GitHub's often just referred to as a repo or a repository. It's where you can store and share code. Now, when Eric was talking about um, uh, open source stuff, let's just say I wanted to build an online calculator. Uh, I might find someone that has built a bunch of code or uh, several there. And probably I, I would be willing to bet if I looked, there's probably about 20 different options in there. There might be one in Python, one in PHP, one in C sharp, who knows? And people yep. put this stuff out there because much like, was it Jack Johnson and Curious George, uh, reduce, reuse, recycle. Well, <laughs> these are things that people are willing to share. They're like, hey, look at this cool thing I built, or you might find this to be useful. And there's no real reason to rebuild stuff that's already been built. Like if we went back to framing and plumbing, I mean, you can actually go buy pre-framed stuff. I mean, we don't go chop down the tree and shave it down and, <laughs> you know, all that stuff anymore. So some of these things are pre-packaged. And then, uh, you know, I, I love the growth of the different tools you talked about. And let's do talk about the AI and DevOps because, um, you know, there's so many different things. You talk about AI and what it solves and going in and finding little bugs. And, and the okay, why are software companies so valuable? Because software comes to work every day. You, it'll show 24-7, 365, done right. It'll work without complaint. And, you know, it's not always that straightforward, people. But it shows up every day. And when you talk about maintaining uptime, you're talking, you know, another thing too, because I, I, I don't want to forget, I, I like to define acronyms, CICD, continuous integration, continuous deployment. And, and you know, but but there are, there's automation and this kind of stuff. I think the worst thing is finding out later that you've had a problem for a very long time that you never even figured out you had. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I, I don't know if AI is going to help solve that. Maybe it's going to fix errors in code. I mean, what what's the future of AI <laughs> when it comes to DevOps? Yeah. I think there's a lot. So actually, I, I, I left out something else at GitHub launch. It's relevant, and I'll explain why in a minute. Um, <clears throat> but it's called GitHub Advanced Security. So while I was at GitHub, we acquired a company called Semmel that um, has, we believe, the, the best static analysis product on the market. And the idea was that um, we, they had 45 Oxford PhDs that were experts in code analysis that were writing tooling to basically help you find vulnerabilities <clears throat> in your code and, and like security issues and eventually just find um, better ways to write code to make it you know, more efficient, more secure, et cetera. Uh, and I think that's really powerful technology. And kind of when you think about combining that with something like, you know, machine learning and, and eventually AI, what it will do is help developers write much better, more secure software, more efficiently. Right. And, you know, the amount of software that we depend on globally is just going to continue to explode, right? Like no company will ever be created again that doesn't rely on software at, at its core in some way, like to operate the business, um, no big company at least. Um, and so when you think about that, you know, there's just like a dearth of skilled software developers in the world. And so I think our job as technology developers is to think about 
how can we build tooling and platforms to bring in, usher in a new generation of, of software developers and, and kind of like ease or lower that on-ramp into software development. And I think that's one of the next big frontiers in um, technology platforms is looking at how we bring um, you know, AI that has been trained on massive code bases. And this is what Copilot did, right? Like Copilot um, was a partnership with OpenAI. They used the GPT-3 model and applied it to the code base that lives on GitHub, which again is most of the world's code. And then when you're writing code as a developer, it will actually like kind of autocomplete. Like if you know how your Gmail or Word now will autocomplete what you're typing or make suggestions, it does that for code. And um, I think that's really powerful because, you know, today <laughs> the real software development workflow, if you're actually writing code, which people don't always talk about is like, you're trying to solve a problem and you go to Stack Overflow or something like you basically Google to try to figure out how to do whatever it is. Right. And and you might copy and paste snippets of code that might not work with the rest of your code base. And you kind of like poured it over um, and then uh, integrate it into your own code base. And what um, Copilot and there's a bunch of other really interesting companies that are being built in this space that are early stage uh, right now are trying to do is kind of give AI more context on your specific software project to make that autocomplete better, to make it easier again and faster to write code as a developer. And I think, you know, that same technology can be applied to help make sure that the code that you're writing is as secure as possible, which, um, you know, those of us who spend any time in the software world know is, is a major issue these days, right? Um, a lot of folks, even not in software, probably saw like Solar Winds, and then they saw like Log4Shell or Log4J and some of these more recent security issues. And I do believe that um, AI is going to help us um, over time write better and more secure software. So there, there's someone listening right now that's like, wait, she's just talking about autocomplete? They did that a long time ago. This it, the speed's one thing; the accuracy is another. So, as the as the as someone who employs a ton of developer, I'm literally in the business of identifying talent. So, first off, the dirt dirt use the term dearth of, of software developers, meaning there's scarcity. There are a few of them, so that means that the ones we have, we have to focus on using them effectively and time management. But the people ask me all the time, they're like, well, do you, do you, are you, are you a developer? Do you want to learn? I'm like, I, I don't have the right personality type. They're like, what do you mean? I said, cause literally a missing semicolon on line 16,008 might break something. And when yep. you're sitting there, this, and it, you don't know that. So the, the, the accuracy part of things. And the reason I wouldn't be good at that is I would just smash a computer every day. <laughs> Because I did, because like that patience and that detail-oriented nature, but the the struggle is real, and you'll hear really uh, senior developers complain about non-senior ones. They're like they're just copying and pasting code; it's messing everything up. But this that's what's happening. They're googling it, finding it, putting it in. Now we started this episode talking about the compatibility of images and just all that stuff. Well. I don't know. Have you ever copy and pasted something out of a word document and an email? And then you look at, it, you're like, wait, that isn't what it looks like. Well, that's <laughs> a lack on the most basic level. That's the lack of the compatibility that we're talking about on some level. So, you know, the whole purpose of DevOps in 
is that consistency and bringing that forward. So that's pretty cool. I actually, uh, you know, like I said, I, it's not something I use myself much, but yeah. And, and now for, in my business, one thing that'll piss off a client faster and louder than anyone else is little goofy issues and errors and anything that fixes that once again, a great thing. Um, now I, I liked the comment where you talk about the expansion of open source going places now, with that, the adoption of the best practices that software developers use is an important thing too. That's one, that's like a non-starter for us at full scale. Like if you have, because if, if you don't have that right, you're just going to either build something that ends up needing to be rebuilt, or you're going to really, really frustrate the other people that know what they're doing on the team. And, you know, this is, and, and, you know, back to the open source thing, I, I love open source. And so all of our employees are in the Philippines, which was really, that's why there's so many like PHP developers there. Cause that was one of the original kind of open source platforms. Why does mm -hmm. that matter? Cause if you're in a small fishing village in the Philippines and you finally saved up enough money to buy a laptop, you didn't have the money for a Microsoft license to be a .NET developer. So you could take these open source things and get to work right away. And yeah. Um, and that's really made a, a big difference. And, you know, Python is another open source platform that according to GitHub is the fastest growing yeah. language on the internet. And why? Because it's simple, because it's easy and people are finding other ways like data scientists. What does that even mean? It's an analyst. It doesn't always have to be a developer, but a lot of, you know, uh, for, for me, a data scientist needs to be a developer in my world, but not always. Yeah. And they, it's, it's user friendly. It's a lot easier. There's less code. There's a lot, a lot of stuff to deal with it and you can go get it for free. That good? That's a good thing. But but I, I'm really not kidding about the the open source thing. And if you talk about, I mean, the, the, the those what might seem like a small purchase is it might be a lot more impactful for someone in a in a developing country. Yeah, and it's I mean, free is great, um, and that's important for accessibility. It's not always better because it's free, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think like. What's magical about open source to me is the opportunity to become part of a community and to learn, True. right? And I think, you know, the most successful open source projects typically have like really good documentation and good kind of user groups and ways to get involved and to learn from others, to share knowledge, to share projects, to contribute, you know, to help improve it. You know, maybe you're trying to build something new in, in Python and you find that it's missing a feature, like if you want to, and if you can write code that's going to be accepted by the project, you can actually contribute. And I think that's a lot of the power in open source. It's not, it's not just that it's free. It's that there is an opportunity to engage around it and to learn from and with others that I think is, is really powerful. And, you know, you mentioned this before, but it's like, why rewrite something when it's already there, right? And like somebody else has already battle tested it. Like you're much better off taking that and, you know, maybe contributing to it rather than trying to rewrite the wheel. But I have a question for you. So you build software development teams. And I talked a little bit about like AI and, and the power that I see and and kind of the, the autocomplete that actually works, right? <laughs> um, that ha That's contextually aware, but like, how do you think about using those types of tools in the teams that you build? Like, are you using anything that incorporates AI um, 
or ML, which I see as like, you know, uh, not as like autonomous and not, a, not a, as constantly learning as AI, like ML is on the path to AI to me. I know different people have different definitions, but um, how do you think about it? Well, the answer to your question is maybe. And the, you said, well, why don't you know this? So the whole thing with full scale is we're in the, so we use the acronym rare. We specialize in recruiting, assessing, retaining, and employing. So we create like an intellectual property safe environment with employees that are ours, that are highly vetted and, you know, all of that. Now with that, what we're trying to match is high, it's our average developer has seven years of experience and we're trying to put them on teams. So we mentioned this dearth of uh, the scarcity of developers uh, anywhere in the U there's 350,000 open uh, tech jobs. And I don't mean sales jobs, like true, like, practitioner of the arts jobs that are open in the United States. And it's a zero sum game. So you hire one person, you just open a job somewhere else. And so, so with that, part of what we do is our team adopts the practices, uses the tools, all of it, of the client team. Now, uh, that's why I said maybe, because we don't get so far down in the weeds that we, we do that. Now, um, we do have clients and people that do all kinds of sophisticated stuff. I mean, the one thing we don't do is sit around and build WordPress landing pages all day. Like the harder it is, the better off, the happier we are about it. We want complex stuff. So, uh, but you talk, but a hundred percent of our people are using, you know, various CI CD tools and, for the so we one of the things that I think is important is we've actually created a whole lot of training, and uh, so we we for younger developers that we're hiring. So there's and our main office in the Philippines is in Cebu City in the Philippines, and no one's ever heard of it. It's the second biggest city in the Philippines, but there's five thousand computer science kids there, and we made it our goal to hire the top three percent. Uh, but with that, they have to learn best practices. So we're trying to introduce them to the tools and all these things and. You know, I'm coming out of this show and I'm, I'm like, wow, we need to look at some of this a little more if we're not using it in some case. Like, I love the co-pilot thing. I hadn't even really considered that because, like I said, it's for us, we want to deliver things quickly and accurately and have them work. And you hear sustainable code, meaning code that can be reused. It doesn't have to be redone, not accumulating yeah. technical debt. So, I mean, some of these things is uh, yeah, you. OK, if it's not expensive to have a GitHub account. No. And if you look at the opportunity cost that you create by the shit that you wreck or the frustration that you cause or the opportunity cost associated with something not working because you had sloppy deployment. I mean, yeah. there's even free GitHub accounts, you know? Yep. So, yeah. So, you know, when it comes to that, I mean, we're always looking for stuff. And then my business partner at Fullscale actually uh, was also the founder of Stackify.com, which was acquired last year. Um, and they, they, there's a whole nother thing we didn't get into about applica application performance monitoring and management. Mm -hmm. And these are like, yep. so we use some of these tools and recommend that, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there. And the reason we have, we, we can't really adopt just one. Cause like I said, uh, we yeah. want to, we don't, I think that one of the better selling points about using full scale is that you don't have to change anything you do to do business with us. And, uh, I think that's important. So yeah. Um, now, you know, as we, as we come to a near conclusion on where we're at, I want to once again, 
let you know that today's episode of Startup Hustle was brought to you by Wix. And if you're an entrepreneur or founder trying to figure out how to successfully navigate the rocket ship that is hypergrowth, do you want and you want to take control of your company's online presence internally and externally? Well, our friends at Wix Enterprise can help. Wix Enterprise is a platform that provides businesses with an all-in-one solution for all types of growth and business needs. You can create high-performing websites for your business, all of which are backed by enterprise-grade security, as well as expert support to help you manage and scale online. Head over to Wix.com for more information. There's a link to that in the show notes, and there's a link to Redpoint.com. Two things. One, I'd like to talk a little bit just for briefly about the VC space. And then we have to do the founders freestyle, which is the way I end my episodes. I'm going to give you an opportunity to uh, say anything you want to say on the way out. I've had people sing, rap, recite poetry, (laughs) or you can just talk about what stood out from the episode, which is my my (laughs) default. But um, yeah, so I don't like to date our episodes, um, but right now in, in, in the world, there's, um, a lot of media attention that is uh, related to venture capital and maybe the lack of investment that's going into certain things. I personally think that venture capital will always be flowing into a lot of different things. What are, I guess what I wanted to ask is, you know, is, is the field of DevOps and companies that provide these solutions, is that a hot or a not right now? I mean, I'm hugely biased because I focus on infrastructure DevOps. Well, that's okay. Uh, security You're allowed to have and open source. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just like to give the group some context. Um, I mean, this is my core focus, so I am an absolute believer. Um, yeah, I think, you know, obviously the venture market has changed a bit. Valuations have come way down, which I think is healthier and more sustainable for the long run. Um, I but, agree. you know, this year, I've invested in three companies that are in varying parts of the DevOps space, right? One is Dagger, which is building, we call it the DevOps operating system. It is super cool uh, open source project from the founders of uh, Docker that gives you like kind of composable building blocks to build your CI, CD pipelines and make them completely portable and scalable uh, for deploying to any cloud platform. So obviously super excited about that. Uh, another one called Railway, which is, <laughs> I think the founder would kill me for describing it this way, but I like it's to- toy trains, people, toy yeah, trains. toy trains. Um, it's, uh, I like to call it like Heroku kind of 4.0 for the modern era. It's really like if you were going to rebuild Heroku and make it reliable and scalable and, uh, and modern, um, you would get Railway. It's a really amazing platform that lets you kind of drag and drop your infrastructure. So you talk about DevOps, like this makes DevOps developers or engineers' lives a lot easier because you can, you know, say, hey, I need I need these backend pieces and you draw some lines, hook them together, and then the platform handles um, all of the scaling and makes it like globally available. And then the third one is called Zata, which is um, kind of Airtable with a real data layer. Um, it's a serverless database that lets you um, build like super fast web applications. Um, again, like making DevOps lives easier. Um, so I am very bullish on on DevOps and infrastructure. Um, I do think, you know, my advice to founders is just to think big. Um, you know, I at Redpoint, we invest in 
kind of usually seed and, and mostly Series A companies. And so we're coming in very early. Um, and we're looking for companies that can produce huge outcomes. You know, some of our investments are like Snowflake and Heroku, which like literally change the way that you build uh, software, right? And what you can do with it. And I think, you know, I see a lot of founders who are building things that are like these incremental improvements. And that's great. Um, but it doesn't necessarily create a VC fundable business that can, you know, become a $5 billion company, which is what venture capitalists are typically looking for. So I think, you know, my advice to founders is there's still plenty of opportunity. Um, I think, you know, AI, ML are super interesting. I think DevSecOps and like the software security supply chain and tooling for helping you, you know, build and maintain more secure software is, is very top of mind. Um, there's a lot of interesting things being developed in the data privacy space as well, because, you know, now <laughs> developers need to be aware of so many different things from like J GDPR and data privacy laws to security vulnerabilities and exploits <laughs> to building software that's like near infinitely scalable. Right. It's, it's a really increasingly hard and complex job. And there there's tons of opportunities to create products that make developers lives better and, and make their work more efficient. But you really need to think about like, are, like, are you building something that's 10x better? Like, that's what you need to be going for as an entrepreneur. And I think sometimes folks lose sight of that. And you see something where it's just like this little improvement. And you're like, that's great. But that's not going to be a huge business. And it's going to be really and, hard. And it's definitely not going to get people to jump from one platform to another. Exactly. Yeah, like yeah. it has to be, you know, developers have a million new options and things flying at them all the time. And you need to give them something that's worth their time to actually investigate and start to try and use. Um, so that's my, my words of wisdom. <laughs> you, you asked earlier about our at full scale of our use of particular DevOps tools by the developers. And, you know, there's obviously that that was a watered down answer for the reason that I gave. One of the things you talk about being bullish, I've, I, we're currently investing a lot in creating more qualified and certified DevOps related people. And, you know, so we get a lot of folks that a lot of developers have like a, a little dash of this, a little dash of that, you know, and then, uh, but we just recently had a guy that was at, at his core, a Python developer, and we had a very well-known client that you would recognize, um, you know, need some, a Google cloud architect. And I was able to, this guy was close and I was able to put mm -hmm. him through a, you know, I used Pluralsight. That's all it took. Pluralsight's a, a software nice. training platform. And. Uh, you know, we use that at full scale, no vested interest in you knowing that, but it, mm -hmm. it walked him through and prepared him to become Google certified. Boom, ready, happy client, happy employee with a new certification and training and happy business owner because those other two were happy. And um, there's, if you're, I think it from a, a bullishness standpoint, if you're, and if you're a developer, you're into all that stuff. I think that, you know, I've been reading articles that, cloud architects. And this, this is the fact it's a, there's a huge shortage and it's, it's attainable. It's attainable. Yeah. You don't, if you have, if you're good at that kind of stuff, you don't, you might, you don't need necessarily need 10 years of experience to maybe be impactful or do something different. And there's a huge shortage of it. Now there's a huge shortage of developers. <laughs> so that doesn't surprise me, but this is a big thing. And, and, you know, we were joking before we hit record, like 
what is DevOps or can you define that? That's like saying, hey, I need software because uh, <laughs> there's so many different pieces to it. But that also tells you that there's a lot of opportunity. So and I agree, I think that the architecture and the things that make other things go and as, mm -hmm. as my uh my business partner and co-host often says, he's like, I love boring businesses, like the <laughs> things that grind the gears and hold the building up and all of that, because without it, uh, it's not a real safe structure. So, um, you know, we did we did threaten to do the founders freestyle. So I want to uh, on our way out here, I want to give you, you know, a minute to. Uh, I mean, out of what all the stuff we talk about, well, you, it's your freestyle. You do it. You do it the way you do it. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to take us in a little bit of a, a different direction, just because I want to um, I want to share some resources. So um, I am I'm also on the board of the Linux Foundation. I've I've been serving on the board there for the last five and a half years, um, which is the kind of overall nonprofit body where a lot of um, open source projects live from an IP perspective and a governance perspective. And the reason that I bring that up is because the Linux Foundation also provides a lot of fantastic free and some paid training resources with lots of like scholarships and stuff available for things like Kubernetes. So you mentioned like this, the dearth of like cloud architects and things like that. And companies like Pluralsight have, have some great offerings, but um, there's also some great free resources available from the Linux Foundation. And I think not enough people know that those are there. So go check out the Linux Foundation's uh, offerings um, <laughs> if you're looking to learn some new stuff. And then I think, um, you know, if I were to leave listeners who are founders speaking directly to the founders with like one observation, um, the folks that are really standing out um, at the early stage are founders that have extreme clarity around what they want to build and their point of view on the world. And I think it's interesting how uncommon that is in the founder world. You get a lot of founders coming in and it might be clear to them kind of what they want to build, but they can't articulate it well. If you want to stand out as a founder, have a crystal clear vision of what you're building and why, and the second piece is be able to explain to a VC how it can become a huge independent business. Um, folks don't talk about that enough as well. And it's one of the primary questions that a lot of VCs will have, whether they ask it or not. When they talk to you as a founder, they're thinking, does this person know exactly what they want to build? Is there a real need for that in the market? And how big is that market? And if you want to raise funding in particular in this environment, you need to really nail those three things. So I think I'll, I'll leave the group with that. Uh, okay. So I, I, now I'll, I'll freestyle for a second. All right. If you want free training or you're looking to learn new stuff, easiest place, go Google it, people. It is a world <laughs> of free information. I, uh, I, I really, so I, I didn't share this earlier. You know, I've dropped out of five colleges. I got a Five. degree. From I, yeah, I know. It's a lot. I get it. I mean, one of them was a top 10 business school in my own defense, and I had started a new business. But, you know, that said, I, I mean, I trained myself on entrepreneurship and so many different things with Google. So, you know, use it as a resource. It's you pretty much find all of it um, in regards to to. So many of you that want to start a tech company, and if you really, okay, so we did a 52-part series last year on how to start a tech company. You can find that in the feed 
By the way, there are links in the notes that'll take you to a link that has all the episodes in it. But if you're struggling with building a team and you're struggling with building a software product and you're struggling to maintain consistency and quality, that is probably on, on many days related to DevOps related stuff. And I think that it's your job as a founder, whether you're experienced or not, to insist on these kind of best practices. And I, it's easy to not understand what they are or what they do. Make it your business to figure it out because it's going to save you a lot of headaches. It's going to save you a lot of money. And it might even save you quite a few employees along the way because when you're building things early, they break a lot. It just happens. They're, they're not solid. They're rickety. But when you're breaking stuff and you're burning through your capital, it creates a tense environment and it's really frustrating. I've been there, I've done it. And I'm really just trying to help you all have some peace of mind with that. Cause I think that no one wants to be frustrated and you know, the tools are out there to fix it. There the training is out there to fix it. There's free stuff or that's really affordable. It is not expensive. And it's in many cases free to have, uh, you know, memberships to this. So if you're out there, it, trying to hire developers or developer team, ask this stuff. What is your, tell me, tell me about what you can listen to this episode and then you can ask them to define DevOps and maybe still have the right definition, right, Erica? Like we kind of got it right. Uh, but ask people to explain their best practices and use and understanding of it. And I think in the end, if they can and they feel really comfortable with it and seem knowledgeable on it, that's a good thing. And if that is absent, it's not the right person. Move on. It's not the right person for you, really, quite honestly, at any stage. I don't think, I mean, like I said, that's a non-starter for us. I'm not trying to train you in your tenure. Now, I will for like a kid that's a top student that's a junior or senior in college. They're still learning stuff. But if you're looking for experienced people, they're exactly that, their experience. And I think the the reason that people want to hire senior engineers when you can't find them is to avoid problems. So this is, so you'd like to think that a lot of people with 10 years of experience know how to do this stuff a lot of times. So you remember back in the day when working 10 years at the same place was like a huge plus when you're hiring someone, that's not always the greatest thing when it comes to technology, because a lot of people are institutionalized and they haven't learned how to use all these different tools. Anyway, I just think when it comes to what is DevOps, I think it's an important thing to remember and maybe embracing that if you're having issues or frustrations, go look at it, take it back to square one and figure some of this stuff out because sloppy work equals a sloppy product. Erica, thank you so (laughs) much for joining me. I really appreciate it. This was fun. I'll see you next time. Thanks for having me. Great time. Take care. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.